Well, we have come to part three in the Book of Signs, and I just loved this whole section. It's really the highlight of the whole book for us as believers because it talks about the rapture, the resurrection, heaven, the judgment seat of Christ, rewards, and worship. And obviously, there's no way that we can cover all the topics tonight, so we're going to mainly kind of focus in on the rapture and maybe touch on a couple of the other subjects. And as Kathy shared in her introduction a couple of studies ago, that um, Dr. Jeremiah does such an incredible job explaining the rapture, and she thinks it's the best thing she ever read on the rapture, and I have to agree. Um, and I certainly don't feel equipped to to share on such an amazing topic as the rapture. I'm no expert in prophecy or anything like that, but I'm trusting in God's grace that he's going to speak to us tonight. And I was really hoping that the rapture would happen before I had to share. <laughs> Let me just say that, as I'm sure all of you. But what a great visual that would have been. And um, when Kathy asked me to share, my initial response was no. But um, as I prayed about it, um, the Lord kind of always challenges me with this question comfort zone or Christ-likeness. And, of course, I like my comfort zone, but um, God never lets me stay there for very long. And hasn't the whole past year been like that? The Lord just calling us to step out of where we're comfortable, shaking up our normal, comfortable routines, getting our attention, and asking us to trust him, even when things are so crazy, chaotic, and confusing. And we've had to learn to keep our eyes fixed on him like we never have before, haven't we? This is uncharted territory that we've found ourselves in. And one of the biggest lessons, I think, that I'm learning through all these things is that we live on promises, not our plans. This whole past year, we make plans and they keep changing, but God's promises never change. They're always true and we can always count on them. But I'm a planner. I like lists. I like to be prepared. I'm a classic overpacker. So it's hard when my plans constantly get waylaid, canceled, or changed, and I'm left feeling frustrated and like I can't get any momentum. Things don't get checked off my to-do list, and that's frustrating for me because when I check it off my list, I feel accomplished. But this new reality of having my plans constantly changed forces me to walk by faith and not to put my hope in anything else but Jesus. And the Bible says that his thoughts are not my thoughts, his ways are not my ways, yet his are so much higher. And that's where we got to come back to. And he's got a plan and a purpose in everything that we see happening around us. And tonight, we want to focus on the reality of the rapture. That's a promise that we can absolutely count on, but we can even plan and prepare for it. And like Kathy said, I have three teenagers, and I feel like I'm constantly asking these questions. What is happening? When is it happening? And who's going to be there? Every time they ask me if they couldn't go out and do something. And so I kind of did the same thing here. So first we're going to look at what is the rapture? The rapture is a promise that Jesus will return for us, his bride. Jesus promised his disciples that after he died and rose again and ascended back to heaven, that he was going to come back. Turn to John 14, 1 to 6. Let's look at that first. John 14, verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then down in verse 28, it says, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. I love that Jesus says, Don't let your heart be troubled because this world is troubling. We're living in enemy territory. But we have this promise that God is preparing a place for us in heaven and that Jesus will actually come back to take us there. And that's referring, obviously, to the rapture. Dr. Jeremiah says in his book, The rapture is the event in which all who have put their trust in Jesus Christ will be suddenly caught up from the earth and taken into heaven by him. And that word rapture in the Greek is harpazo, which means to carry off by force. Another way to describe it would be caught up. I also find it interesting that in the dictionary, if you look up the word rapture, it means extreme pleasure, joy, and happiness. And for us as believers, that's certainly what the rapture is going to be. The rapture is God's provision for his saints to escape the tribulation and the coming judgment upon the world, And after the rapture happens, the world will enter into a seven-year period called the tribulation, which is an extended time of horror, agony, and devastation like nothing before seen or imagined. So you could say that the rapture is the beginning of the end. If you could turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, let's look at that, because it gives an amazing picture of what the rapture is going to be like. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, I'm going to read down to verse 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And Paul says that we are to comfort one another with these words. That means we're to talk about the rapture. It's good for us to keep this future event at the forefront of our minds. The promise of the Lord's return should bring us comfort. It will get us through the insanity that we see all around us, and it will help us live the way God wants us to live while we wait for his return. And as a church, as you guys know, we've been studying through Revelation on Sunday mornings, Even the kids in the high school are studying Revelation in their Bible class. Pastor Joe has been in Matthew 24 and 25 on Wednesday nights. We've been talking about the last days almost every time we're at the church for a Bible study. And I think that God might be trying to tell us something, that he wants us to be ready and prepared for his return. And then not only that, but to be thinking about it, to be talking about it, and to be comforted by it. And these words have been just as true throughout all of church history. We need to be fixated on Christ's return. 
I haven't lived through a revival yet, but I'm praying that the Lord brings one more. But I've heard that in the revivals of the past that the rapture has been a theme, that people were so focused on the fact that Jesus was coming soon during those times. And I think it's because it stirs our hearts and it keeps us from becoming attached to the world. It's so good for us to remember that Jesus could return at any point. And Dr. Jeremiah does an amazing job of describing what the rapture will look like and what we will experience when the rapture, when the rapture actually happens. He says, as you read these words, the Lord Jesus is seated in the heavens at the right hand of the Almighty Father. But when the right moment comes, he will initiate the rapture by literally and physically rising from the throne, stepping into the corridors of light, and actually descending into the atmosphere of planet Earth, from which he rose into the heavens over the Mount of Olives 2,000 years ago. It is not the angels or the Holy Spirit, but the Lord himself, who is coming to draw believers into the heavens in the rapture. And I just love to imagine God rising from his throne like that and telling his son to go get us and to bring us home. And I just want to say, come Lord Jesus. Right now would be nice. Um, but that brings us to our second question. When will the rapture happen? Matthew 24:36 says, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Only God knows when the rapture will happen. If God wanted us to know, he would have told us. But he didn't. Instead, he wants us to always be ready because it could happen at any time. Dr. Jeremiah calls Jesus' return imminent, meaning it could happen at literally any moment. And we need to be living every day with that awareness. And we're closer than we've ever been. I always believed that I could see and experience the rapture, but I don't, I don't know if I actually believe that I would see it. And now, especially with all that's happened in the past year, I think it's so close. The Bible does give us some warning signs to tell us what the last days are going to look like. And it's pretty obvious that we're so there. And I just saw this crazy thing yesterday that Amazon is doing. It's called Amazon One, and it actually uses a scanner to scan your palm to pay for stuff. Is that like crazy? It's like daily this stuff is happening. But I'm going to read a couple passages of what um, the last days are going to look like. You don't need to turn there. You can just listen. But Matthew 24:37 to 39 says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And Pastor Joe said that Noah was telling the people, warning them that rain was coming, and that's why he was building the ark. But at that point in history, it had never rained before. Noah was preparing for something that had never happened before in history, and people thought he was crazy. 2 Timothy 3, 1-4 says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That sounds a little familiar, don't you think? And then Matthew 24, 3 to 8. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. And I find it interesting that Jesus was talking to his disciples right before he was crucified, and some of his last conversations with them were about the end of the age. They were asking him, what will will the signs be? How will we know? And he listed a bunch of things, religious deception, false teachers, plagues, diseases, earthquakes, wars, all these things. And he was basically saying that as the rapture of the church draws near, things are going to get worse and worse. And we've obviously seen that happening in the past year. Things are unraveling at a heightened pace, and it's overwhelming. But I love what Jesus says in verse 6. Don't be troubled, just like in John 14. He was talking to his own disciples, and he's telling us that tonight. It's going to get bad, but it's all part of the plan. I've got this. If we're saved, then as scary as things get, we don't need to live in fear. We don't need to be overwhelmed or troubled. We understand that this is all leading somewhere. The worse it gets, the closer we come to Jesus coming back and establishing his kingdom once and for all. And I constantly have to tell myself as I look around and I'm tempted to freak out that God is on the throne. Things aren't just randomly happening or falling apart. I have no idea when the rapture will happen. No one does. And anyone that claims to know doesn't. But in my opinion, I think it's very close. And we need to be ready. And the time is short. And the one thing that God keeps challenging me with is, am I redeeming the time? Romans 13, 11 to 14 says, that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. As we're getting closer and closer to the Lord's return, we should be living in a certain way, as it says in this verse. It says, make no provision for the flesh. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Our lives should look different than the world's. We're called to live pure and holy lives, not perfect by any means, but keeping a short account of sin. And I would say, not just those outward sins, but what about our hearts? What about our attitudes? Are we angry? Are we bitter, resentful? We need to bring our emotions to Jesus and allow him to change us. We can't make excuses for our flesh and our fleshly responses, no matter what is happening around us. We need to wake up and live fully in the light. And it's the knowing that Jesus could return at any moment that helps us to do that. And it keeps us on our toes. Don't we act differently if our boss is in the room? We shouldn't, but that's human nature. I've definitely caught my kids saying things when they didn't think I was within earshot that they wouldn't say if I was in the room with them. If we wouldn't do something or act in a certain way, if Jesus was physically standing in the room with us, should we be doing it at all? And I'm speaking to myself, or as I should say, God is speaking to me about this as well. And if I really lived as if Jesus could come back, 
any day, I would be making better choices. We don't want Jesus to come back and find us in sin or compromise or in situations that um, we shouldn't be in or even living in fear or bitterness. But instead, we should want to be like the faithful and wise servant in Matthew 24:45 to 50, which says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of. God knows that we have that tendency towards apathy like Hannah shared about at our last Bible study. But Jesus calls us to live with a mindset that we could be face to face with him at any moment. And if we really believed that, we wouldn't be apathetic. And we would also be like that wise and faithful servant doing what he's called us to do. So not only if we believe that Jesus would come back at any moment, would it keep us from sin and compromise, but it would also make us bolder about living for him and sharing his love with unsaved people. I would be redeeming the time because I know it's short. And I think that's one of Satan's biggest deceptions to us. He deceives us into thinking that we have all the time in the world when the reality is that none of us are promised tomorrow. And I think a really difficult part to all of this, this not knowing when Jesus will return, is that sometimes the waiting is exhausting. And I'm reminded of Galatians 6, 9 that says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. I read this story that I want to share, and I thought, uh, years ago I read it, and I thought it was a good illustration of what we're talking about. Um, Florence Chadwick was a world-class, long-distance swimmer. In 1950, she crossed the English Channel faster than any other woman in history. A year later, she crossed it again, this time against the currents, something no other woman had ever done. Long-distance swimmers battle ocean currents and the effects of salt water. They also have to contend with sharks, ships, and the brutality of the scorching sun. But Chadwick flourished at the demanding sport. Florence set her sights on the 26 miles between Catalina Island and the California mainland. On July 4, 1952, Florence slid into the water off Catalina Island and began the long journey toward California's coastline. As usual, she was flanked by boats, some that were making sure she didn't get hit by the other vessels, and some that were making sure she didn't get attacked by sharks. It wasn't long before she began to feel sick. She was having trouble breathing, and and she felt nauseous. It was quickly discovered that one of the boats in her fleet was leaking oil. The ship was removed and Chaddock paddled on, stroke after laborious stroke. Fifteen long hours later, another element threatened her attempt at making history. A thick, heavy fog set in on the bay. It was so blinding that she could no longer see the land ahead of her. And as the minutes passed, the fog grew more and more dense. The water temperatures began to change, and the humidity meant that her breathing became more difficult. Chadwick was afraid that she was swimming in circles, and she began to lose hope. From one of the boats, her mother and her trainer offered encouragement, but in spite of their support, all Florence could see was the wall of fog. 
Finally, in desperation, she did something she had never done before. She asked to be pulled out of the water and into the boat. She was done. The exhausted and disheartened swimmer was pulled into a chase boat and given medical treatment along with some food. Adding regret to weariness, Chadwick soon discovered that she had stopped swimming less than a mile from the California shore. She had gone 25.5 miles, only to quit with half a mile to go. Later, she said that if she could have just seen the shore and how close it was, she would have made it. She couldn't see her goal, so she lost hope. And as Christians, when we lose sight of Jesus and his promises, we lose hope and we're tempted to give up. Two months later, Florence Chadwick stepped off the Catalina shore once again and set her sights on California. Mother Nature was just as menacing this time around, sending yet another dense fog the swimmer's way. But this time, Chadwick kept a mental picture of the shoreline in mind. And when she touched the sand on California's beach, she became the first woman to complete the task. Florence didn't know when she would get to the shore. She couldn't see it. And that swim must have felt like an eternity. But she knew if she could just keep swimming, she would get there eventually. And isn't life like that sometimes? It's tiring to keep swimming, fighting the currents, getting pummeled by wave after wave, surrounded by the fog of confusion that disorients us, dealing with the enemy like the shark-infested waters. Yet we need to keep swimming, just like Dory said in Finding Nemo, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And all the while, setting our minds on things above, not on things of the earth, keeping eternity, heaven, the reality of the rapture at the forefront of our minds, remembering God's promises, And like it says in Habakkuk 2.3, though it tarries, wait for it. And then our third question, who is involved in the rapture? The rapture is for believers only. It's an exclusive event. Only those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be raptured and taken to heaven to escape the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we read earlier makes it clear that he is talking to believers because he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. And then in John 14, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said he was going to prepare a place for us and come again. He's talking to his own. Only those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus will get raptured and go to heaven, the place he's preparing for us. Everyone else will be left to face the tribulation. Seven years of horrible things happening, Once the believers in the Holy Spirit are gone, I can't even imagine how bad it's going to be. Sure, people will still get saved during the tribulation, but obviously the preferable way is to get saved now and go in the rapture. The other person involved in the rapture is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 again says that the Lord himself will descend. Jesus is coming. And I want to ask you tonight, do you know him? We need to know Jesus, not of him or about him. It's like me saying that I know Billy Graham. I've heard of him. I know a lot about him. I've read a lot of books about him. I've heard him speak. I've even visited the Billy Graham Library and his childhood home. I feel like I know him, but I've never actually met him. I've never had a personal conversation with him. I don't have a relationship with him. But compare the knowledge that I have with him to what his kids have with him. They're the ones that know him personally, closely. They had a connection and a relationship with him that doesn't even begin to come close to what I have. And it's the same with Jesus. 
Do you have a personal relationship with him like that? Do you talk to him, allow him to talk to you, reading his word, following his ways, loving him, and letting him love you unconditionally? And let me just say this, because I think some of us, saved or not, need to hear this tonight. God loves you just as much when you're at your worst as when you're at your best. He cannot love you any more or less than he already does. He loves you so much that he sent his only son into the world to die on the cross for your sins. And one day soon, he will send his son into the world once again to take us home. If you don't know Jesus like that, and maybe you've been at church your whole life, but you can get to know him. It's so simple. Just pray and invite him into your life. He waits to be invited in. He loves you enough to give you that choice, whether or not to accept him. And once you do, you're guaranteed your spot in the rapture and in heaven. And finally, the last question I have that we're going to look at tonight is, what do we do while we're waiting for the rapture? And I want to suggest two things tonight. We need to work and we need to worship. Luke 19.13 says, Occupy till I come. These words come from a parable called the long journey, And in summary, it's about a nobleman who goes away on a long journey, and before he leaves, he gives his servants ten minas, which was about a quarter of an annual salary in that time. So the master's instructions before he leaves is, occupy till I come, or some translations say, do business until I come. And it's a picture of Jesus giving us the same instruction. Whatever he's placed in our hands, whatever he's called us to do, whatever gifts and abilities we have, we need to be using for his kingdom so that when he does return, he finds us busy about our father's business. Pastor Damian Kyle did an amazing message recently called Occupy Till I Come about this parable, and you can go look it up on Calvary Chapel Modesto's website. It's awesome. Um, But then let's look at, let's turn now to 1 Corinthians 15.50. First Corinthians 15, verse 50 to 58. And this is another amazing passage about the rapture. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Because of all that was just said, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So here's another description of the rapture, and it tells us that it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. It will be instantaneous. Corruption will will put on incorruption. We will become immortal. Death will be swallowed up in victory. All of this amazing stuff will happen. And then this declaration, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? And how does it end? He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. I think Heidi said it at the last study too, we have work to do for the kingdom. Out of our love for God, we need to serve him and continue on even when the going gets hard. We cannot be overwhelmed by the craziness around us that we become inactive or are so paralyzed by fear that we're afraid to do what God has called us to do. Or maybe you just feel like the problems are so huge. What's the point? What difference can you make? You're just one person. The problems in the world are so huge right now. What difference is it going to make anyway? But really, none of that matters. God wants each of us to simply occupy as individuals until he comes, to do what he puts in front of us each day, large or small, and then leave the results in his hands. Just like the loaves and the fishes, we put what little we have in his hands, and he's the one that does the multiplication. That's his responsibility, not ours. We can't save people. We can't change people's hearts. But we can live godly, holy lives and allow God's love to to flow through us. So whatever is right in front of you, no matter how small, be faithful to it. There is no calling more spiritual for you than whatever your calling is right now. Maybe you're supposed to be a prayer warrior. Maybe you're supposed to be an example of a woman who walks closely with Jesus, a mom, a grandmom, whatever it is. Sometimes I think we miss the things God has put right in front of us because we're looking for something else. We think we have to be doing the big things to serve God, but so often it's the simple, ordinary things in our lives that we can do for his glory. And if you don't know what to do, ask him. He'll show you. But one thing that we're all called to do is share his gospel, his word with the world around us. Each of our callings in that are going to look different, but one thing is true for all of us, and it all really comes down to this. We need to know God and make him known. We need to know him personally. We need to get to know him better each day by spending time with him. Even if you've been walking with him for years and years and years, we're always going to have more and more to learn about God. We need to be in his word, imitating him, following his example, and then we need to share him with others. We need to let his love and his light shine through us to whoever we're around, whether that's one person or lots of people, and then the results are left up to him. Remember Noah. He talked about the flood. He warned people for a hundred years. And no one except his family believed him. But Noah was faithful. He obeyed and he prepared. And that's exactly what he's calling us to do. In the book of signs, part three begins with the chapter on the rapture. And it ends with the chapter on worship. And I think it's fitting to briefly look at worship here tonight too. Looking back over this past year and how difficult it's been, Worship has really helped me to make it through, especially on those days that I was struggling. I would come to church once it opened up again and worship and just cry. And I would, or if you're at home and if I was at home or in the car, just putting a worship song on and simply praising God, my whole perspective and outlook would change, even though the circumstances hadn't. And I love what Dr. Jeremiah says about worship. Worship is the corridor through which we make the exchange of heaven. It is the avenue that leads us from the emptiness of this world to the fullness of the next world. It is the street that leads from decay and discouragement to renewal and glory. When we fail to worship, therefore, we confine ourselves to the the despair of this life. 
Another thing worship does is it helps take our thoughts captive. It encourages and refreshes our souls. It renews and revives our spirits. And it lifts our gaze to the one who humbled himself to the point of death for us and the only one who is worthy of all the glory and all the praise that we can give to him. Robert Morgan, one of my favorite authors, said, Revival is living with an awareness of God around us, above us, beside us, and within us. Worship is filling our minds with thoughts of God, our hearts with love for God, and our mouths with praise to God. And I just love that. When I can't sleep, I pray. And when that doesn't work, sometimes I just start singing a worship song, and it just immediately helps calm my spirit. And I think of my daughter. She always hated when she was little going in her car seat and driving in the car. And so we would sing different little songs, and none of it would really help. But if I sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, she would immediately stop crying. It was crazy. Like, why would that song be over another song? But it's obvious. It's singing about Jesus, and it's worship. And it calms us, and it helps us take our thoughts captive. It fixes our eyes on Jesus. And worship can even help us in warfare. So many times when I feel the enemy trying to take me down, worship, along with prayer and reading God's word, strengthens me. You guys got to read 2 Chronicles 20, which is this amazing example of how God moved on his people's behalf through praise and worship to win a battle against their enemies. And the thing was, is they worshiped before the battle was won, they worshiped during the battle itself, and they worshiped after they had the victory. So I just love that. Worship shows our faith in God even before we know what the outcome is going to be. And no matter what happens, we can always praise God. Even on our darkest days, even in our saddest moments, even when we're so overwhelmed and afraid, praise him. Praise the one who loves you enough to die for you, the one who is coming to take you home very soon. And I think worship is one of the things that's going to set us apart from the world, who's freaking out, paralyzed by fear, bent on destruction, removing God out of everything. And instead of getting all caught up in that and distracted by all of that, we can praise and worship our God who is still on the throne. The world is only going to get worse, and as it does, we have the opportunity to shine even brighter. And we were created to worship. You see that all around us. Human beings are always worshiping something. But we were made to worship our Creator, and as Dr. Jeremiah talks about in the book, worship is something that we're going to be doing forever and ever. And I love that. And he says in heaven, we won't have a need for preaching and sharing the gospel in eternity. We won't have the need for prayer as far as bringing our needs and requests to God, because we will be living in perfection. But we will worship for eternity, and I cannot wait for that. And then I just want to look at Matthew 24, verse 40, if you guys want to turn there. Matthew 24, verse 40 to 44 says, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, 
for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And that's the last question I want to ask tonight. Are you ready for his return? If you are, and if that passage and the rapture excites you as it does me, then praise the Lord, worship him and serve him like you've never done before. Ask him to continue to refine and purify your life so you can know him better each day and make him boldly known to the world around you. These are the last days, girls, and we need to be faithful and wise servants redeeming the time until he comes. But if that passage and the thought of the rapture scares you or makes you nervous because you haven't been living the way you should or you don't know Jesus personally and you're afraid that you're the one that's going to be left behind, you can know without a doubt that if Jesus returned tonight, you would go to heaven with him. All you need to do is ask him. John 6.37 says that all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. You're not going to be the exception. The only requirement is that you come to him and give yourself to him. It doesn't matter what you've done. The Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I've been reading Gentle and Lowly. Do you guys, have you guys gotten that book? The, the one the pastors are recommending? It's amazing. Um, it's available in the bookstore. If you haven't gotten it, you have to. But this quote from it fits so well here. It says, Christ loved his own all the way through death itself. What must that mean for you? It means first that your future is secure. If you are his, heaven and relief is coming. For you cannot be made unhis. He himself made you his own, and you can't squirm out of his grasp. And it means second that he will love you to the end. Not only is your future secure on the basis of his death, your present is secure, proven in his heart. He will love you to the end because he cannot bear to do otherwise. No exit strategy, no prenup. He will love you to the end, to the end of their lives, to the end of their sins, to the end of their temptations, to the end of their fears. And I just love that. And then Revelation, this is in closing, Revelation 22:12 says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. He is coming back soon. And if you need to make things right with God, you need to do so tonight while there's still an opportunity. I honestly don't know how many more opportunities there's going to be. And I'm going to close in prayer in a couple minutes, and the worship team is going to come play a last song. And as we worship, let's just take a couple minutes and seek the Lord. Allow him to minister to your heart and make sure you know where you're going to be spending eternity. You can ask Jesus into your heart tonight if you've never done so. And if you're saved, but you haven't been living fully in the light, if you haven't been living as you should, then take tonight to repent and allow God to flood your life with his forgiveness and the strength to get on the right path again. And then if you'd like to pray with someone, we would love to pray with you. And the girls will be down front afterwards if you need prayer to accept Jesus into your heart or anything else. We would love to do that with you. So let's just pray right now. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sin and that you're coming back so soon to take us home. And Lord, I just pray right now for every person in this room, every heart in this room, Lord. If someone doesn't know you, Jesus, I pray that she would invite you into her life tonight, Jesus. 
I pray that you would not allow any, any hindrances from the enemy, any deception, any lies that the enemy might be trying to tell her to keep her from coming to you, Jesus. And Lord, I just pray for every believer in this room, Lord. Lord, that you would wash us with your word, Jesus, that you would um, impress upon our hearts, Lord, that you're coming back so soon and that we need to be living holy and right lives before you, Lord, that if there's anything in our lives that you're putting your finger on that you want to remove, Lord, I pray that we could confess that tonight and leave it here, Lord, and allow you just to fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, to refresh us, to renew a right spirit in us, Lord. And Lord, make us women of your word, women of prayer. Lord, I pray that you'd raise up an army of women that praise you no matter what comes, Lord, and that you would strengthen us and allow us to finish well in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen.